It was 1995. Yes, I know that was before most of you were born, before you were even a twinkle in your parents' eyes, but let's hear it for the 90s kids. Now, at the time, I was eight years old. My long, frizzy hair was pulled back by some gaudy headband, as we did. I also had on some adorable Easter outfit, probably one of those really itchy boutique things that my grandma would send. I had ruffled socks with lace on the edges, keds, and probably some pastel shirt with stitched on Easter eggs on the front. You know, like before we knew ugly Christmas sweaters were ugly, and we did that to clothing for all seasons and holidays. Anyway, we lived in Okinawa, Japan. Uh, My dad was in the military, and we were stationed there uh, for the Navy. And his command post was throwing an Easter egg hunt for families. And my mom was really excited because she had a video camera. And this was rare. Owning a computer was rare back then. And she was going to be able to make VHS tapes to send our families back in the States. Because 90s. Anyway, there was a colossal man dressed as an Easter bunny. And eggs were hidden everywhere. And there were so many kids. We were all armed with our Easter baskets and eyeballing the landscape to make a plan of attack. But I wasn't as fast as some of the other kids, and I wasn't as good at hunting. What I was good at was following the other kids, and as they reached out to snag an egg out of the grass, I was good at snagging an egg out of their basket, much to the horror and shame of my parents. Oh, and that video camera caught it all on tape. I knew it wasn't okay, but I wanted those eggs, guys. Some of them had cash. One of them, I think, even had a $20 bill. But I kind of forgot that even though I wasn't looking at the adults, they were watching us. And even though it got me what I wanted, it also had me giving away all my eggs to the kids I had robbed and getting grounded and earning me the I'm so disappointed in you, I don't really have word speech for my parents. Under pressure, my integrity cracked like a plastic Easter egg. Tonight, we are at week five into our Sermon on the Mount series. It's been challenging to me as we look deeper into the Sermon by Jesus, learning more about the manifesto of Jesus, as Nathaniel described it, his instructions on kingdom living and kingdom character. Now, something I find really fascinating is that this Sermon of Jesus is an echo of when Moses received the Ten Commandments from God and then presented the law to God's people. In Exodus and Leviticus, we see Moses on Mount Sinai telling God's people what it looks like to live differently than the people around them. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus telling God's people what it looks like to live differently than the people around them, specifically kingdom living versus worldly living. Jesus is amplifying the role of the Ten Commandments, the role of the Old Testament law in the Messianic kingdom. As commentators Riken and Riken stated, he intensified the application from legalistic application to spiritual principle. Now, last week, Richard challenged us to deal with our sin and to stop blaming it on other people, to stay faithful to Christ as he stays faithful to his church. So let's continue tonight looking at what kingdom living looks like in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 42. And in tonight's text, we will see that kingdom living requires integrity under pressure and not cracking under pressure like a plastic Easter egg. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. That what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. See, I believe Jesus is telling his followers that kingdom living requires integrity, specifically integrity under pressure. In the first verses, Jesus is challenging his hearers to have integrity when it comes to oaths. Let's read these verses again. Verse 33 in Matthew chapter 5. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. At first glance, it almost appears that we are not to make oaths at all. But this is not exactly the case. We see many oaths in scripture. An oath is a strong promise, a vow, or a pledge. Some are made for positive reasons, like in marriage or at a baby dedication. Others are made to underscore the seriousness of the oath. And then other times it is made when we feel our integrity is not believable or being believed, and we are trying to convince someone to believe us. Now, we also find many vows, covenants, and oaths in scripture, sacred binding promises to be taken seriously and fulfilled, period. No backing out. Saul makes a rash vow. Abraham makes vows to kings. Ruth makes a pledge to Naomi. Paul vows to believers that he will pray for them. God himself makes a vow with Abraham. We see this specific vow discussed later in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. And these verses say this, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God swore an oath that his character would be the currency of his promise, so that Abraham would understand the depth of the covenant promise, so that we too would find refuge in the oath of God. Moses also gives instructions to the Israelites about oaths in Numbers chapter 30 verses 1 and 2. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Jesus was not saying you cannot make vows or swear an oath in Matthew chapter 5. That would contradict so much of other scriptures. But, and Jesus wouldn't do that. What Jesus was saying is well summed up by Warren Wearsby. Oaths cannot compensate for poor character. 
The religious leaders were guilty of skirting the edge of integrity and swearing by everything but God and using that as a justification not to keep their word. Oh, well, since I don't believe in this, then it didn't really matter. And this, Jesus said, is not kingdom living. Jesus taught that what you say and how you say it matters. It is not okay to make flippant vows and promises. It is not kingdom character to intentionally deceive others by tricky verbiage. One of my favorite Proverbs is in chapter 10, verse 19, and it says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Jesus was calling out the lack of integrity in the lives of the religious leaders who were by their conduct giving such a poor example of what it looked like to follow God. Jesus said, that example isn't it. And I would ask, too, if we are guilty of flippantly making promises. Are we guilty of using vows and oaths for our benefit or even casually? Is our speech so saturated in half-truths or inconsistency that we have to make pledges in order to be believed? James chapter 5, verse 12 says, Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Our words should not be empty, misleading, or meaningless. Jesus was not saying we can't make oaths. He was saying to be pure in heart. That kind of integrity is kingdom conduct. That is integrity under pressure. In the second section, Jesus says we need to have integrity, not retaliation. Now, hold up. I'm not one to retaliate. I'm not a vengeful person. Really? It may be funny in the movies when the bully finally gets their due, the underdog comes up swinging, just desserts. But honestly, this happens sometimes in my personal life as well. I find myself just a little excited when those who made me suffer, suffer. When those who hurt me, hurt. Even if not by my hand, I admit it feels kind of satisfying when I come out ahead and they are left with less. And to admit that, to hear those words come out of my mouth, makes me see how revolting that is. So what does Jesus say about retaliation in Matthew chapter 5? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In this passage, Jesus is quoting and referencing Leviticus chapter 24, verses 17 through 22. And these are good, so let's read this together. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So in these verses, this law, it was about legalized vengeance, but also fairness. It was to ensure that a punishment would not exceed the crime. So often we do not just want what is fair, but we want blood. We want suffering. We want our due and then some. We want all the eggs from someone else's basket. Justice and fairness are things God cares passionately about. But you owe me living is not holy for kingdom character. 
God cares about justice, not self-importance. We find this echoed in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 16 through 21. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and is accused as brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So shall you purge the evil from your minds, and the rest shall hear in fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This law was established to hold authorities accountable for fairness, as well as preventing false accusation for selfish gain. This law limited retribution for the civil government. However, the religious leaders of Jesus's day had taken it so out of context, out of authority enforcing justice, and instead they twisted it and they made it about obligation and their personal relationships. They made it about what they were owed, by the people around them, rather than a reason to advocate for others. I'm going to say that again. The religious leaders of the day made it about what they were owed by the people around them, rather than a reason to advocate for others. Jesus was not saying that being a victim or abused did not matter. Jesus was not saying that justice did not matter. We see God's passion for justice all through scripture. He was saying that a what's-in-it-for-me attitude is not kingdom character. As citizens of a new kingdom, we are to have selflessness motivated by love. So the strike that Jesus talks about here, it's not a punch to the face. This is not an act of violence meant to maim. It was a grievous insult in the ancient world, one of the most disrespectful things that you could do to another person. Even among Roman law, it was listed among with the eye for an eye laws, and it permitted uh, permitted prosecution. The slap that Jesus speaks about is one that is meant to belittle and to disrespect another person. And actually, this reminds me of when Jesus is questioned by the high priest after his arrest and before his trial. In John chapter 18, verses 22 through 23, it says, When he had said these things, and what it's talking about is Jesus speaking about his ministry and followers, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus, too, was struck belligerently and disrespectfully. Yet his response was one of calm and integrity. Jesus tells his followers in this sermon that they need to be peacemakers, even when they are reviled and persecuted. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 40, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us through our cultural lens. But in that time period, a cloak to an impoverished person was often not only their outer garment, but that was also their shelter. It was an essential need for survival. It was an item that was protected by law. And actually, in Exodus 22, we find that not even a creditor could take a person's cloak for payment. So what is Jesus saying? I don't think that he's saying that you don't need to think about your needs or to right wrongs. But as commentator Carson said, 
gladly part with what you may legally keep. Why would someone be trying to take from you? And I think in the context of what we've been looking at here and the the temptation to cave under pressure and not have integrity, I think this is speaking to those who owe a debt or have a wrong that needs to be righted. I believe that what Jesus was telling them and what he is telling us is that kingdom conduct, integrity, means that when you are in the wrong, go above and beyond to make it right. Even when you may have legal recourse to do less, I believe Jesus is telling us to be meek, to value justice, to value others over things. Moving on to Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, it says, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Again, this verse falls a little odd on our ears. I like to go on walks with you guys, and if you wanted to walk a little longer, okay. Road trip? Sure. But that's not what's happening here. At the time, Rome was in power, and by Roman law, they could impress any Jewish citizen to carry their load. Maybe this is weapons or armor, whatever, but only for one mile. Now, I'm sure this was not a popular thing to Jewish citizens, not something they were eager to do. They were going somewhere. They had plans, responsibilities, and Jesus says to them to go an additional mile out of their way when someone is using an unfair law to strong arm them. An additional mile makes this a four-mile abuse of their time and energy when they had no legal choice. I can't imagine. Even today, I get pretty frustrated when I feel taken for granted or taken advantage of. Jesus was not saying to be a doormat. He was saying when you are vulnerable in a position of powerlessness, even when things are not in your control and you are taken advantage of, to be ready to submit instead of causing conflict. That as much as they hungered for retribution, retaliation, revenge, and rebellion, Jesus said, hunger and thirst for righteousness instead. Lastly, in verse 42, Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. That seems odd. Jesus had talked about all these volatile situations, and now he talks about giving to beggars? But how often do we see the person on the corner and think, there are so many jobs right now. Get one. Now, Jesus was not saying to let others take advantage of you. I've known people that have given generously but not wisely, and that can be problematic as well. This verse is speaking to a graphic and unfeeling turning away of someone. I believe Jesus was saying that when you are in a position of power, and notice how that contrasts from the last verse, when he was saying you're in a position of vulnerability, this time when you are the person in a position of power, when you are the one that is faced with the have-nots, that kingdom living demands action, and that is what integrity under pressure looks like. Zechariah chapter 7 verses 9 through 10 give us a little insight into God's thoughts on this matter. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. And then he also says in Psalm 112, verse 5, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. God has always cared that his people care for others with kindness and mercy. 
Now, actually, this makes me think of a student I talked to, uh, I think it was just last week, and they were telling me the story. They had walked to Kroger for groceries, and it was in the snow, and maybe it was a couple weeks ago. And while walking back from Kroger, which, I mean, that's a little bit of a trek, guys, I'll be honest. While walking back, he saw someone shoveling snow, but they were struggling with it. It was a lot of snow, and the ice was heavy. Now, this the student, he could have turned a blind eye. It was cold. It was slick. His hands were full with the groceries he just bought. He'd already been walking for a little while, but he didn't. He stopped and helped. And the person that he helped paid him for helping. And that just happened to be the amount to cover the cost of the groceries he just purchased. And then when he returned to his residence, he saw a homeless man in need. Now, at this point, there have been quite a few delays. And he got the groceries he purchased because he wanted them. But the student then handed over the groceries to the hungry man and then went even further and helped him find aid. Guys, that is open-handed kingdom living. That is what it looks like to see someone in need, not once, but twice. That is kingdom character. That is integrity under pressure. That is what Jesus said when he meant when he said to be merciful. Friends, kingdom living requires us to live with integrity, especially under pressure. When there is tension and conflict and hardship and unfairness, that is when it is easiest to react in our sinful nature, our selfish nature. Jesus says when you want to make rash promises, to speak simple truth or admit wrong. When you want to take justice into your own hands, he says to follow the law of the land. When you want to fight back against disrespect, refuse to be baited. When you don't want to make amends, make it right and more. When you want to stick it to the man, submit to authority. When you don't want to be generous, be generous anyway. See, in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes told us, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we like the sound of inheriting the earth. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And that sounds good to me. But then Jesus lays out for us what it looks like practically in daily living to make kingdom-minded choices in line with the Beatitudes. And that, that doesn't sit so well or easily. These examples that Jesus gives in Matthew 5 flush out that the blessed that are persecuted, the reviled that have evil uttered against them, the mistreated and falsely accused, theirs is the reward of heaven. I think Jesus instructs his followers on what kingdom conduct really looks like. The value system of the kingdom is different, and he wants us to pursue integrity under pressure instead. I laugh about the story of the stolen Easter eggs, and thankfully my parents can laugh about it now too. But in the moment, I was pretty embarrassed afterwards when I realized I was caught. I was caught caving under pressure, but I will tell you, I never did something like that again. It was a catalyst for change. I would challenge you as well to let Jesus's words in Matthew 5 bring about change in you too. That you would think differently under pressure and choose kingdom integrity instead. Will you pray with me? God, I'm so thankful for your word. And I am so thankful that Jesus taught practically. And I'm so thankful that you teach us practically as well. And God, I ask that you would help us to choose integrity under pressure as a reflection of what it means to have the conduct of the new kingdom, to live by the manifesto of Christ. That's the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.